Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Season 4, Episode 2. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. From author and Horror Hill newcomer Jeffrey Ford, a young couple on a romantic getaway run afoul of some of the local yokai. And, of course, hilarity ensues. Not really. It actually gets a bit grim, but, uh, hey, that's what we like around these parts. So, shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. 
where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Jeffrey Ford, I give you A Natural History of Autumn On a blue afternoon in autumn, Riku and Miki drove south from Numatsu in his silver convertible along the coast of the Izu Peninsula. The temperature was mild for the end of October, and the air was clear, the sun glinting off the Suruga Bay. She wore sunglasses and, to protect her hair, a yellow scarf with a design of orange butterflies. He wore driving gloves, a black dress shirt, and a loosened white tie. The car, the open road, the rush of the wind made it impossible to converse. And so, for miles, she watched the bay to their right, and he the rising slopes of maple and pine to their left. Just outside the town of Dogoshima, a song came on the radio. Just you, just me. And they turned to look at each other. She waited for him to smile. He did. She smiled back. And then he headed inland to search for the hidden onsen in Ugami. They'd met the previous night at the limit, an upscale hostess bar. Riku's employer had a tab there, and he was free to use it when in Numatsu. He'd been once before, drunk, and spent time with a hostess. Her conversation sounded rote, like a script, her flattery grotesquely opulent, and therefore flat. The instant he saw Miki, though, in her short black dress with a look of uncertainty in her eyes, he knew it would be a different experience. He ordered a bottle of Nika Yoichi and two glasses. She introduced herself. He stood and bowed. They were in a private room at a polished table of blonde wood. The chairs were high-backed and upholstered like thrones. To their right was an open-air view of pines and the coast. She waited for him to smile, and eventually he did. She smiled back and told him, I'm writing a book. Riku said, Aren't you supposed to tell me how handsome I am? Your hair's perfect, she said. He laughed. <laughs> I see. I'm writing a book, she said again. I decided to make a study of something. Oh, you're a scientist, he said. We're all scientists. We watch and listen Take in information, process it. We spin theories by which we live. Well, what if they're false? What if they're not? She said. He shook his head and took a drink. They sat in silence for a time. She stared out past the pines, sipping her whiskey. He stared at her. Tell me about your family, said Riku. She told him about her dead father, her ill mother her younger sister and brother. But when she inquired about his parents, he said, Okay, tell me about your book. I decided to study a season, 
and since autumn is the season I'm in, it would be autumn. It's a natural history of autumn. You've obviously been to the university, he said. She shook her head. No, I read a lot to pass the time between clients. How much have you written? Nothing yet. I'm researching now, taking notes. Do you go out to Thousand Tree Beach and stare at Fuji in the morning? Your sarcasm is intoxicating, she said. He filled her glass. No, I do my research here. I ask each client what autumn means to him. And they tell you? She nodded. Some just want to say how big their biceps are, but most sit back and really think about it. The thought of it makes all the white-haired Ojisan smile, the businessmen cry, the young men a little scared. A lot of it is the same, just images, the colorful leaves, the clear cold mornings by the bay, a certain pet dog, a childhood friend, a drunken knight. But sometimes they tell me whole stories. What kind of stories? A very powerful businessman. One of the other hostesses swore he was a master of the five elements. Once told me his own love story about a young woman he had an affair with. It began on the final day of summer, lasted only as long as the following season, and ended in the snow. What did you learn from that story? What did you put in your notes? I recorded his story as he told it, and afterward wrote... The story of a ghost. <laughs> Why a ghost? He asked. I forget, she said. And I lied. I attended Waseda University for two years before my father died. Well, you didn't have to tell me, he said. I knew when you told me you called the businessman's story the story of a ghost. Pretentious? She asked. Eh. He shrugged. Maybe, she said and smiled. Forget about that, said Riku. I will top that Make Inu businessman's exquisite melancholy by proposing a field trip. He sat forward in his chair and touched the tabletop with his index finger. My employer recently rewarded me for a job well done and suggested I use, whenever I like, a private onsen he has an arrangement with down in Itsu. I need only call a few hours in advance. A field trip? She said. What will we be researching? Autumn. The red and yellow leaves. Places out in the woods on a mountainside. Hidden and very old-fashioned. So no frills. I propose a dohan. An overnight journey to the Onsen Inugami. A date? She said. And our attentions will only be on autumn? Nothing else? You can trust me when I say that is entirely up to you. Your hair inspires confidence, she said. You can arrange things with the house on the way out. I intend to be in your book, he said, and prevented himself from smiling. After hours of winding along the rims of steep cliffs and bumping down tight dirt paths through the woods, the silver car pulled to a stop in a clearing in front of a large, slightly sagging farmhouse, Minka-style, built of logs with a thatched roof. Twenty yards to the left of the place, there was a sizable garden filled with dying sunflowers, with ten-foot stalks, their heads bowed. 
To the right of the house, there was a slight path that led away into the pines. The golden late afternoon light slanted down on the clearing, shadows beginning to form at the tree line. We're losing the day, said Riku. We'll have to hurry. Miki got out of the car and stretched. She removed her sunglasses and stood still for a moment, taking in the cool air. I have your bag, said Riku, and shut the trunk. As they headed for the house, two figures appeared on the porch. One was a small old woman with white hair, wearing monpe pants and an indigo katazome jacket with a design of white flames. Next to her stood what Miki at first mistook for a pony. The sight of the animal surprised her and she stopped walking. Riku went on ahead. Grandmother Chinatsu, he said and bowed. Your employer has arranged everything with me. Welcome, she said. A small wrinkled hand with dirty nails appeared from within the sleeve of the jacket. She beckoned to Miki. Come, my dear, don't be afraid of my pet. Oh, no, he does not bite. She smiled and waved her arm. As Miki approached, she bowed to Grandmother Chinatsu, who only offered a nod. The instant the young woman's foot touched the first step of the porch, the dog gave a low growl. The old lady wagged a finger at the creature and snapped, Yumithi! Then she laughed, low and gruff. The sound at odds with her diminutive size. She extended her hand and helped Miki up onto the porch. Come in, she said, and led them into the farmhouse. Miki was last in line. She turned to look at the dog. Its coat was more like curly human hair than fur. She winced in disgust. A large, flattened pug face. No snout to speak of. Black eyes, sharp ears, and a thick bottom lip, bubbling with drool. Oh no, she said, and bowed slightly in passing. As she stepped into the shadow beyond the doorway, she felt the dog's nose press momentarily against the back of her dress. In the main room, there was a rock fireplace within which a low flame licked two maple logs. Above hung a large paper lantern, orange with white blossoms, shedding a soft light in the center of the room. The place was rustic, wonderfully simple. All was wood, the walls, the ceiling, the floor. There were three ancient carved wooden chairs gathered around a low table off in an alcove at one side of the room. Grandmother led them down a hallway to the back of the place. They passed a room on the left, its screen shut. At the next room, the old lady slid open the panel and said, The toilet. Farther on, they came to two rooms, one on either side of the hallway. She let them know who was to occupy which by mere nods of her head. The bath is at the end of the hall, she said. Their rooms were tatami style, straw mats and a platform bed with a futon mattress in the far corner. They undressed, put on robes and sandals, and met in the hallway. As they passed through the main room of the house, Arno stirred from his spot by the fireplace, looked up at them, and snorted. 
Oh, easy, easy, said Riku to the creature. He stepped aside and let Miki get in front of him. Once out on the porch, she said, Ono is a little scary. Only a little? He asked. Grandmother appeared from within the plot of dying sunflowers and called that there were towels in the shed out by the spring. Riku waved to her as he and Miki took the slate path into the pines. Shadows were rising beneath the trees and the sky was losing its last blue to an orange glow. Leaves littered the path and the temperature had dropped. The scent of pine was everywhere. Curlews whistled from the branches above. Are you taking notes? He called ahead to her. She stopped and waited for him. Which do you think is more autumnal? The leaves? The dying sunflowers? Or Grandmother Chinatsu? Too early to tell, they said. I'm withholding judgment. Another hundred yards down the winding path, they came upon the spring nearly surrounded by pines except for one spot with a view of a small meadow beyond. Steam rose from the natural pool, curling up in the air, reminding Miki of the white flames of the old lady's jacket. At the edge of the water, closest to the slate path, there was ancient stonework, a crude bench, a stacked rock wall covered with moss, six foot by four, from which a thin waterfall splashed down into the rising heat of the onsen. Lovely, said Miki. Riku nodded. She left him and moved down along the side of the spring. He looked away as she stepped out of her sandals and removed her robe, which she hung on a nearby branch. He heard her sigh as she entered the water. When he removed his robe, her face was turned away, as if she were taking in the last light of the meadow. Meanwhile, Riku was taking Miki in, her slender neck, her long black hair, and how it lay on the curve of her shoulder and her breasts. Are you getting in? She asked. He silently eased down into the warmth. When Miki turned to look at him, she immediately noticed the tattoo on his right shoulder, a vicious swamp eel with rippling fins and needle fangs and a long body that wrapped around Riku's back. It was the color of the moss on the rocks of the waterfall. Riku noticed her glancing at it. He also noticed the smoothness of her skin, and her nipples were erect. Who is your employer? She asked. He's a good man, he said and lowered himself into a crouch so that only his head was above water. Now, pay attention, he said, and looked out at the meadow, which was already in twilight. To what? she asked, also sinking down into the water. He didn't respond, and they remained immersed for a long time, just two heads floating on the surface, staring silently and listening steam rising around them. At last light, when the air grew cold, the curlews lifted from their branches and headed for Australia. Riku stood, moved to a different spot in the spring, and crouched down again. Miki moved closer to him. A breeze blew through the pines. A cricket sang in the dark. Was there any inspiration? He asked. 
I'm not sure, she said. It's time for you to tell me your story of Autumn. She drew closer to him, and he backed up a step. I don't tell stories, he said. As brief as you want, but something, she said, and smiled. He closed his eyes and said, Okay. The autumn I was seventeen, I worked on one of the fishing boats out of Numatsu. We were out for horse mackerel. On one journey, we were stuck by a rogue wave, a giant that popped up out of nowhere. I was on deck when it hit, and we were swamped. I managed to grab a rope, and it took all of my strength not to be drawn overboard. The water was... so cold and powerful. I was sure I would die. Two men did get swept away, and they were never found. That was my natural history of autumn. She moved forward and put her arms around him. They kissed. He drew his head back and whispered in her ear. When I returned to shore that autumn, I quit fishing. She laughed and rested her head on his shoulder. They dined by candlelight in their robes in the alcove off the main room of the farmhouse. Grandmother Chinatsu served and Ono followed a step behind, so that every time she leaned forward to put a platter on the table, there was the dog's leering face, tongue drooping. The main course was thin slices of raw mackerel with grated ginger and chopped scallions. They drank sake. Miki remarked on the appearance of the mackerel after Riku's story. Most definitely a sign, he said. They discussed the things they each saw and heard at the spring as the sake bottle emptied. It was well past midnight when the candle burned out, when they went down the hall to his room. Three hours later, Miki woke in the dark, still a little woozy from the sake. Riku woke when she sat up on the edge of the bed. <clears throat> Are you all right? He asked. I have to use the toilet. She got off the bed and lifted her robe from the mat. Slipping into it, she crossed the room. When she slid back the panel, a dim light entered. A lantern, hanging in the center of the hallway ceiling, bathed the corridor in a dull glow. Miki left the panel open and headed up the hallway. Riku lay back and immediately dozed off. It seemed only a minute to him before Miki was back, shaking him by the shoulder to wake up. She'd left the panel open, and he could see her face. Her eyes were wide, the muscles of her jaw tense, a vein visibly throbbing behind the pale skin of her forehead. She was breathing rapidly, and he could feel the vibration of her heartbeat. Get me out of here, she said in a harsh whisper. What's wrong? he said, and moved quickly to the edge of the bed. She kneeled on the mattress next to him and grabbed his arm tightly with both hands. We've got to leave, she said. He shook his head and ran his fingers through his hair. It wasn't perfect anymore. He carefully removed his arm from her grip and checked his watch. It's 3 a.m., he said. You want to leave? I demand that you take me out of this place now. What happened? He asked, 
Either you take me now or I will leave on foot. He gave a long sigh and stood up. Um, I'll be ready in a minute, he said. She went across the corridor to her room and gathered her things together. When they met in the hallway, bags in hand, he asked her, Do you think I should let Grandmother Chinatsu know we're leaving? Definitely not, she said, on the verge of tears. She grabbed him with her free hand and dragged him by the shirt sleeve down the hallway. As they reached the main room of the house, she stopped and looked warily around. Was it the dog? He whispered. The coast was apparently clear, for she then dragged him outside, down the porch steps to the silver car. Get in, he said. I have to put the top up. It's too cold to drive with it down. Just hurry, she said, stowing her overnight bag. She slid into the passenger seat just as the car top was closing. He got in behind the wheel and reached over to latch the top on her side before doing his. Miki's window was down, and she heard the creaking of planks from the porch. She leaned her head toward her shoulder and looked into the car's side mirror. There, in the full moonlight, she could see Grandmother Chinatsu and Ono. The old lady was waving and laughing. Drive! She shrieked. Riku hit the start button, put the car in gear, and they were off into the night, racing down a rutted dirt road at fifty. Once the farmhouse was out of sight, he let up on the gas. You've got to tell me what happened, he said. She was shivering. Just get us out of the woods first, she said. To a highway? I can't see a thing. I don't remember all the roads, he said. We might end up lost. He drove for more than an hour before he found a road made of asphalt. His car had been brutalized by the crude paths and branches jutting into the roadway. There would be a hundred scratches on his doors. During that entire time, Miki stared ahead through the windshield, breathing rapidly. We're on the main road. You want to tell me what happened? He said. I got up to use the toilet, she said. And I did. But when I stepped back out into the hallway to return, I heard this... this horrible grunting noise. I swear it sounded like someone was choking Grandmother Chinatsu to death in her room. I moved alongside the wall to the entrance. The panel was partially open and, and there was a light inside. The noise had stopped, so I peered in. And there was the shriveled old lady on her hands and knees on the floor, naked. Her forearms were trembling. Her face was bright red. And she was croaking. At first, I thought she was ill, but then I looked up and realized she was engaged in sexual relations. Grandmother Chinatsu, he said and laughed. Who was the unlucky gentleman? That disgusting dog! She, she was doing it with Ono? I almost vomited, said Miki. But I could have dealt with it. The worst thing was Ono 
saw me peering in. And he smiled at me and nodded. Dogs don't smile, he said. Exactly, she said. That place is haunted. Well, I'll figure out where we are eventually and we'll make it back to Numatsu by morning. I'm sorry you were so frightened. The field trip seemed a great success till then. She took a few deep breaths to calm herself. Perhaps that was the true spirit of autumn, she said. A story of a ghost, he said. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So finding the perfect place is easier than ever. And so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities, lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. The silver car sped along in the moonlight. Miki was leaning against the window, her eyes closed. Riku thought he was heading for the coast. He took a tight turn on a narrow mountain road and something suddenly lunged out of the woods at the car. He felt an impact as he swerved, turning back just in time to avoid the drop beyond the lane he'd strayed into. Miki woke at the impact and said, What's happening? I I think I grazed a deer back there. I've got to pull over and check to see if the car's okay. Miki leaned forward and adjusted the rearview mirror so she could look out the back window. Too late to see. It was a half mile back. He eased down on the brake, slowing, and began to edge over toward the shoulder. There's something chasing us, she said. I can see it in the moonlight. Keep going! Go faster! He downshifted and took his foot off the brake. As he hit the gas, he reached up and moved the mirror out of her grasp so he could see what was following them. It's a dog. 
they said. Oh, but it's the fastest dog I ever saw. I'm doing 45 and it's gaining on us. They passed through an area where overhanging trees blocked the moon. Watch the road, she said. When the car moved again into the moonlight, he checked behind them and saw nothing. Then they heard loud growling. Each searched frantically to see where the noise was coming from. Swerving out of his lane, Riku looked out his side window and down and saw the creature running alongside, the movement of its four legs a blur, its face perfectly human. Kuso, open the glove compartment. There's a gun in there. Give it to me. A gun? Hurry! He yelled. She did as he instructed, handing him the sleek nine millimeter. You were right, he said. The place was haunted. He lowered his side window, switched hands between gun and wheel. Then, steadying himself, he hit the brake. The dog looked up as it sped past the car, a middle-aged woman's face, bitter, with a terrible underbite and a beauty mark beneath the left eye, riding atop the neck of a mangy gray mutt with a naked tail. As soon as it moved a foot ahead of the car, Riku thrust the gun out the window and fired. The creature suddenly exploded, turning instantly to a shower of salt. It had a face, he said, maneuvering the car out of its skid. A woman's face. Don't stop, she said. Please. Don't worry. No, she said. Who is your employer? Why would he send you to such a place? Um, maybe if I tell you the truth, it'll lift whatever curse we're under. What is the truth? Um, my employer is a very powerful businessman, and I have heard it said that he is also an Anmyoji. You know him. In a moment of weakness, he told you a story about an affair he had. Afterward, he worried that you might be inclined to blackmail him. If the story got out, it would be a grave embarrassment for him both at home and at the office. He told me, spend time with her. They wanted me to judge what type of person you are. And... If I'm the wrong kind of person, I'm to kill you and make it look like an accident, he said. Are you trying to scare me to death? You and the old woman? No, I swear. (laughs) I'm as frightened as you are. And I couldn't harm you. Believe me, I know you would never blackmail him. She rested back against the car seat and closed her eyes. She could feel his hand grasp hers. Do you believe me? He said. In the instant she opened her eyes, he saw ahead through the windshield two enormous dogs step onto the highway, thirty yards in front of the car. Watch out! She screamed. He'd been looking over at her. He hit the brake before even glancing to the windshield. 
the car locked up and skidded, the headlights illuminating two faces. A man with a thin black mustache and wireframe glasses, whose mouth was gaping open, and a little girl, chubby, with black bangs, tongue sticking out. On impact, the front of the car crumpled, the airbags deployed, and the horrid dogs burst into salt. The car left the road and came to a stop on the right-hand side, just before the tree line. Riku remained conscious through the accident. He undid his seatbelt and slid out of the car, brushing glass off his shirt. His forehead had struck the rearview mirror, and there was a gash on his right temple. He heard growling, and, pushing himself away from the car, he headed around to Miki's side. A small, pot-bellied dog with the face of an idiot, sunken eyes and swollen lower lip was drooling and scratching at Miki's window. Riku aimed, pulled the trigger, and turned the monstrosity to salt. He opened the passenger door. Miki was just coming around. He helped her out and leaned her against the car. Bending over, he reached into the glove compartment and found an extra clip for the gun. As he backed out of the car, he heard them coming up the road, a pack of them, speeding through the moonlight, howling and grunting. He grabbed her hand and they made for the tree line. Not the woods, she said, and tried to free herself from his grasp. No, there's no place to hide on the road. Come on! They fled into the darkness beneath the trees, Riku literally dragging her forward. Low branches whipped their faces and tangled Miki's hair. Although ruts tripped them, they miraculously never fell. The baying of the beasts sounded only steps behind them. But when he turned and lifted the gun, he saw nothing but night. Eventually, they broke from beneath the trees onto a dirt road. Both were heaving for breath, and neither could run another step. She'd twisted an ankle and was limping. He put one arm around her to help her along. She was trembling. So was he. What are they? She whispered. Jin Menken, they said. <laughs> Impossible. They walked slowly down the road, and, stepping out from beneath the canopy of leaves, the moonlight showed them, a hundred yards off, a dilapidated building with boarded windows. I can't run anymore, he said. We'll go in there find a place to hide. She said nothing. They stood for a moment on the steps of the place, a concrete structure, some abandoned factory or warehouse, and he tried his cell phone. No reception, he said, after dialing three times and listening. He flipped to a new screen with his thumb and pressed an app icon. The screen became a flashlight. They turned it forward held it at arm's length, and motioned with his head for Miki to get close behind him. With a gun at the ready, they moved slowly through the doorless entrance. The place was freezing cold and pitch black. 
As far as he could tell, there were hallways laid out in a square, with small rooms off to either side. An office building in the middle of the woods? She said. Each room had the remains of a western-style door at its entrance, pieces of shattered wood hanging on by the hinges. When he shone the phone's light into the rooms, he saw a window opening boarded from within by a sheet of plywood and an otherwise empty concrete expanse. They went down one hall and turned left into another. Miki remembered she had the same app on her phone and lit it. Halfway down that corridor, they found a room whose door was mostly intact but for a corner at the bottom where it appeared to have been kicked in. Riku inspected the knob and whispered, There's a lock on this one. They went in, and he locked the door behind them and tested its strength. Get in the corner, under the window, he said. If they find us and the door won't hold, I can rip off the board above us and we might be able to escape outside. She joined him in the corner and they sat, shoulders touching, their backs against the cold concrete. We're sure to be safe when the sun rises. He put his arm around her and she leaned into him. Then neither said a word or made a sound. They turned off their phones and listened to the dark. Time passed, yet when Riku checked his watch, it read only 3.30. Well, that in a half hour? He wondered. Then... There came a sound, a light tapping, as if rain was falling outside. The noise slowly grew louder, and seconds later, it became clear that it was the sound of claws on the concrete floor. That light tapping eventually became a clatter, as if a hundred of the creatures were circling impatiently in the hallway. A strange, guttural voice came from the holes at the bottom corner of the door. Tomodachi, it said. Let us in. Riku flipped the flashlight app and held the gun up. Across the room, the hole in the bottom of the door was filled with a fat, pale, bearded face. One eye was swollen shut, and something oozed from the corner of it. The forehead was too high to see a hairline. The thing snuffled and smiled. Shoot, said Miki. Riku fired, but the face flinched away in an instant. And once the bullet went wide and drilled a neat hole in the door, the creature returned and said, Tomodachi. What do you want? said Riku, his voice cracking. We are hunting the spirit of the living, said the creature, the movements of its lips out of sync with the words it spoke. What have we done? said Miki. Oh, our hunger is great. But we only require one spirit. We only take what we need. The other person will be untouched. One spirit will feed us for a week. 
Miki stood up and stepped away from Riku. He also got to his feet. What are you doing? She said. Shoot them. She quickly lit her phone and shone it on him. Instead of aiming the gun at the door, he aimed it at her. I'm not having my spirit devoured, he said to her. You said you couldn't hurt me. It won't be me hurting you, he said. She saw there were tears in his eyes. The hand that held the gun was wobbling. I'm giving you the girl, he called to the Jinmenken. Oh, true benefactor, said the face at the hole. No, she said. What have I done? I'm going to shoot her in the leg so she can't run. Then, I'm going to let you all in. You will keep your distance from me, or I'll shoot. I have an extra clip, and I'll turn as many of you to salt as I can before you get to me. Turning to Miki, he said, I'm so sorry. I did love you. But you're a coward. You don't have to shoot me in the leg, she said. I'll go to them on my own. My spirit's tired of this world. She moved forward and gave him a kiss. Her actions disarmed him, and he appeared confused. At the door, she slowly undid the lock on the knob. Then, with a graceful, fluid motion, she pulled the door open and stepped behind it, against the wall. Take him, he heard her call. The Jin Menkin bounded in, dozens of them, small and large, stinking of rain, slobbering, snapping, clawing. He pulled the trigger till the gun clicked empty and the room was filled with smoke and flying salt. His hands shook too much to change the clip. One of the creatures tore a bloody chunk from his left calf and he screamed. Another went for his groin. The face of Grandmother Chinatsu appeared before him and devoured his. The following week, in a private room at the limit, Miki sat at a blonde wood table, staring out the open panel across the room at the pines and the coast. Riku's employer sat across from her. Ingenious. The natural history of autumn, he said. And you knew this would draw him in? She turned to face the older man. He was a unique person, she said. Too bad for Riku, he said. I wanted to trust him. Really, the lengths to which you'll go to test the spirit of those you need to trust... He's gone because he was a coward. A coward I can tolerate. But he said he loved you, and it proved he didn't understand love at all. Hmm, a dangerous flaw. He took an envelope from within his suit jacket and laid it on the table. A job well done, he said. She lifted the envelope and looked inside. A cold breeze blew into the room. You know, 
he said. This season always reminds me of our time together. As she spoke, she never stopped counting the bills. All I remember of that, she said, is the snow. You've been listening to A Natural History of Autumn by Jeffrey Ford. Jeffrey Ford is the author of the novels The Physiognomy, Memoranda, The Beyond, The Girl in the Glass, The Cosmology of the Wider World, and The Shadow Year. His short story collections are The Fantasy Writer's Assistant, The Empire of Ice Cream, The Drowned Life, Crackpot Palace, and A Natural History of Hell. Ford's short fiction has appeared in a wide variety of magazines and anthologies. Both books and stories have been translated into nearly 20 languages worldwide. Ford is the recipient of the World Fantasy Award, Nebula, Edgar Allan Poe Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Hayakawa Award, among others. He lives in Ohio in a 120-year-old farmhouse surrounded by corn and soybean fields and teaches part-time at Ohio Wesleyan University. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference. It would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. Check out the link in the show notes for my ever-growing library of audiobooks. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, 
original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.